Amen. Good morning, church. Good morning, kids. Where are the kids at? You're with us this morning? Okay, there's two. That's fine. I'll hear them later. I have a, a treat for you all this morning. This is a declassified document from World War II. This was created and distributed by the Office for Strategic Services, which later became the CIA. And so during World War II, if there were countries that were being occupied by Nazi forces, if you were a small town in Poland or France, and the Nazis were occupying your town, this would be distributed to you. It's called the Simple Sabotage Field Manual. This was how you resisted the enemy forces, not by throwing a big violent revolution, but it was actually with little things you could do every day, depending upon your profession. So if you worked with vehicles, put a little sawdust into the gas tank or loosen a couple of the nuts on the tire so five miles down there start to be some problems. If you work with tools, just put them in the wrong spot or let them grow dull. If you work on a farm, harvest the crops too early or too late or feed them to the livestock. If you work on a train, issue the soldier a ticket for the wrong place or issue two tickets for the same seat or take the luggage off at the wrong stop. I think WestJet has read this. <laughs> But it's amazing, in World War II, to fight the Nazis, the CIA said that if you want to immobilize a group of people, just bombard them with little distractions, with little inconveniences. And that feels familiar, right? It's kind of modern life, these little things that just grind away and wear you down. In the morning, your car's making a bit of a funny noise. Your neck is stiff for no apparent reason. You get to work, and on your way at the drive-thru, they give you the wrong thing. You get home and your dishwasher's messed up. Your kid got in trouble at school. There's some strange charges on your credit card. Uh, someone cuts you off at the grocery store. And you get back, you're exhausted. There's no way I'm going to life group tonight. I had a terrible day. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do pizza and Netflix. I need some me time. And we're slowly distracted and bamboozled by the little things in life that wear us down. If it worked against whole armies, we're not exempt from this as well. It's actually not surprising. Charles Spurgeon, when he's talking about warfare... He puts it this way. He says, mm -mm -mm. Oh, who wrote this? I did there. But earnest, laborious believers are sure to be assailed, even as fruit-bearing trees are certain to be visited by the birds. Satan cannot stand a man or woman or child who serves God earnestly, but he does damage to the archenemy's dominions, and therefore he must be incessantly assailed incessantly, always little things popping up. There's always one more thing to do. I don't have time for that. I got to do this today. And so the question is, in modern life, with this infinite plethora, this cornucopia of small challenges all the time, how can I have peace in the midst of all this? How can I have peace? How can I have rest? How can I have a nice posture during this? It's not the question of how can I have no problems, but how can I move through the challenges of life with peace. That's a very important distinction. Um, during stressful times, your sympathetic nervous system kicks in and there's certain muscles that will flex involuntarily. Your upper traps, that's how if it's a stressful day, you just can't turn your neck anymore. Think parts of your jaw, things like that. So how do we have this peace, this relaxed, unclenched nature as we go through the challenges of life. We're not asking, why are there problems? Why is there evil? Why is there suffering? But how do I have peace in the midst of it? I hope that clarifies it. So would you turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, if you want to find out how God gives us peace. 
We're several weeks into our series called In the Arena, where we're looking at the fact that the Bible describes us as in the middle of a great conflict. There's spiritual warfare. That's the language that's used. That there are forces out there, ever-present and imminent, that want to distract you, disturb you, and discourage you from what God has for you. The new life that you have with him and the life of love that we have for others. And so Paul is describing what God has provided for us, not to remove us from the problem and the conflict, but to strengthen us in the midst of it. So Paul is going to give a little bit of thesis background, and he's going to talk about the pieces of the armor themselves. So let's begin reading in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, given all this, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Paul is giving an illustration of how to stand in the battle and he's outlining the pieces of armor that a Roman soldier would wear. And in doing so, he actually, he helps implicitly give an answer to this this question that many Christians have and there's different theological systems and even whole church denominations that will try to answer this. In the Christian life, how much do I do and how much does God do? How much is me? How much is him? And here Paul is saying that there is something God has provided that you could never have on your own, but you need to put it on. You go online, you're shopping around for a gadget, a gadget, gizmo, a piece of furniture to do something you could never do, but it arrives And you have to assemble it, and you have to use it. Paul is saying that God has given these things to us. There are inheritance in Christ, but we have to put them on. And it's surprising that when he's talking about the armor of a soldier, he talks about the shoes. The Jordans of peace? No, not at all. We think of shoes in terms of fashion. At the time, this was function, especially from Alexander the Great onward. Shoes of a Roman soldier, very important. They had to do three things, at least. They had to provide traction, protection, and mobility. Traction was, they were kind of like the original cleats. These shoes had little hobnails sticking out of them, little spikes, little cleats, and they had to give you grip while you're scaling a mountain. Or if you're in battle and you slip, it's not, whoopsies, I'm so klutzy. (laughs) No, you're dead. You die. Kids, write that down. That's the lesson for today. (laughs) They gave you traction. Second, they had to give you protection. Because on the battlefield, enemy forces would put spikes in the ground. Little ones, they wouldn't be sticking up. They would be hidden under leaves and debris. And if you stepped on it, you'd be immobilized. You needed proper footwear, like steel-toed boots on a job site. They had to give you protection from the hazardous things in the environment. And thirdly, they had to give you mobility. Alexander the Great conquered the ancient world. And one of the secrets of his success was that he could move his troops farther and faster than anyone thought possible. He could outmaneuver flanks, he always surprised people, and it was because of the footwear at the time. From then onwards, it was really important for all enemy forces, all armies, to have footwear that was tough, could get a good grip, and was light. And that's kind of what you want in athletic shoes today, and in your cleats in this way. So, this brings us to what Paul is saying here about peace. What do these shoes represent? They don't represent the gospel of peace. 
They do not represent the gospel of peace. We call them the shoes of peace. Paul does not call them that at all. He says, well, the, the, the gospel of peace is the prepositional object of the sentence, but the subject is the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In the word Greek, it's etoimasia, and that means a readiness, it basically means a sure-footingness, a, a stable stance, not being inert and sluggish, but actually being one, stable, but sure of footing. They would use this phrase to describe dancers and athletes. So a gymnast has a couple flips in the air and they land, and they're stable. Or how many boxers win the match based on footwork? Good footwork is, is the base level for boxing. So he's talking about a steadiness of footing to stand firm that comes from the gospel of peace. That's interesting. We think about peace in our modern culture today, and we want oneness. We want to align our inner selves. We want peace. And so we'll go to all these classes and courses, and we'll exercise more, get better sleep, drink more water, because I want to have peace within myself. I'm sure some of you came to church today thinking, I want peace within myself I'm going to come to church. That could help with it. But the Bible, when it talks about peace, it talks about it in a relationship that we would never think about. It says that peace with God leads to peace from God. There's an objective reality of peace with God that leads to the subjective experience of peace from God. So do you see the relationship there? So if we want to learn how to have peace with ourselves, you first have to address the first conjunct of this relationship. How can I have peace with God? How can I have peace with God? The book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, Paul, words are hard. Paul leans in at this specific question, this relationship of peace with God. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we have peace with God. He says in verse 10 of the same chapter, chapter 5, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Very interesting language there. Paul says, before being reconciled by Jesus, we were enemies with God. We existed in a state of enmity with God himself. That's a strange thing to say in Canada. I'm not angry at God. I'm not an enemy of God. If you're a Christian, that's good for you. It's just not for me, but I'm not, I'm not mad about it in any way. Jonathan Edwards, he puts it like this. He's got this great book on the subject. He describes this anger as such. The anger we have towards God sleeps deep. Like every anger and every hatred that really hurts your soul, it hides yourself. That's why we go to counseling. We're trying to reveal these pockets of our heart that are uh, unaware and hidden to even ourselves. The most pernicious and soul-destroying kinds of anger are completely hidden. When God crosses your will, when he doesn't let things happen the way you want them to happen, the anger in your heart is like a bunch of sleeping vipers. Throw a stone in there and it will be up hissing and spitting poison. This is how it looks today. Our culture prioritizes the self and well-being. You, your priorities, your self-esteem, your comfort, your reputation, your glory. That's, what is, uh, that's what's of the highest value. And if anything challenges that, if a person makes it uncomfortable, if they speak out, if they challenge it in any way, then that's evil, wicked, wrong, bigoted, and hateful. 
You are great, and all the problems are out there. If we could just get rid of all these social impediments and constructs and structures, then your greatness could just shine. That's Disney discipleship. That's 18th century romanticism. That's postmodern metaphysics. That's the therapeutic self. That's expressive individualism. That's you can be and do whatever you want. There's nothing out there speaking into who and what you are, okay? So that's where we stand, and then God comes forward. He says, hi, I'm God. You're not. And guess what? This is how you should live. I'm going to give you the gift of the law. Because there's a way that you think is right and it feels right. But actually going down this path, it's only going to lead you to pain. It's going to hurt you and it's going to hurt others around you. So this is how you ought to live. The law was seen as a gift. But guess what? You can't keep it. You're not perfect. And now that you know what you ought to do, it only more clearly identifies how far you're falling short. So I'm going to send my son Jesus. He's going to live the life you cannot live. He's going to pay the price you could not pay. He's going to die the death you should have died to give you the life that you did not deserve. That is offensive. Because I am chiefly, chiefly and foremostly concerned with my reputation, with my plans, with my glory. I've got an idea of how life should go. And if something bad happens, that's on God. That's his fault. That's not how things should go. Maybe he's punishing me. If there's a God out there, I want nothing to do with him. Because my life isn't going how I want it to. And this can get deeper and deeper. You look at the manifesto left behind by the Columbine shooters, any, any mass attack, it's always anger and hatred at the nature of being itself. I'm angry at life, so I'm going to go and try and inflict as much damage as I can. That's anger and hatred with God. He didn't give me the life I want. He didn't give me what I deserve. And now I'm angry with him. And the Holy Spirit illuminates that enmity to us. And that's how we respond. Is the Holy Spirit illuminating this to you right now? Even today? Do you have anger with God that you need to respond to? Now, is God angry with us? Perhaps, but in a different way. Imagine hypothetically that I robbed a bank with my skill set as a pastor, philosopher, birthday party magician. Okay? And I get away with it. Thank you, Lord. Now, prior to that robbery, uh, I'm currently in good standing with the Canadian government. I pay my taxes. We, we got no beef. We got no tension with each other. But if I robbed a bank and got away with it, my relationship with the government would be compromised. There would be tension. There would be hostility. Maybe I have to launder the money. I got to keep uh, doing more criminal activity to solve the first problem. There would be tension there. There's no point of me applying for special bursaries and tax, ex tax exemptions. No point, because I'm at enmity with the Canadian government. And for there to be peace, there needs to be reconciliation. There's an institutional tension. So God, being the perfect source, he is goodness, truth, and beauty. He is not indifferent to the evil and suffering of the world, both that happens to us and what we inflict. A price needs to be paid, but he says, guess what? I am going to send Jesus to pay that price. So even in his wrath, God is loving. You don't hear that much. God is loving in his wrath and that he sends his son to pay the price so now he can turn to us and pour out the fullness of his blessings, his love, his grace, and his spirit in this way. That is how we have peace with God. How do I have peace with God? Through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now this leads us to the second part of the conjunction. How do I have peace 
from God. How do I have peace from God? How do I have this readiness, this sure footing? There's, if you look at the, the three qualities of the cleats, we talked about the need to provide traction, protection, and a lightness, a mobility. And if you look at those three features in relation to the sure footingness from the gospel of peace, the traction is a sure footing in the chaos that comes from our right standing with God. It's not that problems don't come. It's not that you come to Jesus and your life is perfect. That's wrong. That's not in the Bible. It's not that that will happen. It's that you will have peace in the midst of it. It's not that you won't get hurt. Jesus wept. Jesus suffered. In the garden, he was under so much angst and stress that he was sweating blood. But he had a peace in the midst of it. That's the traction that we can get. There's a protection in the midst of it from the shoes of peace. That I, don't know, that I know I'm not going to be immobilized, but God has paid for this. There's armor he's given me. And also the lightness, the sure-footingness, the peace. The gospel of peace gives us a lightness that people notice. It's kind of cliche to say it on stage. People will say, what is this, this, this difference about Christians? In my master's program for philosophy... Philosophers and artists, um, for all their faults, a strength is that they really embody their belief system about the world, about the nature of reality. So if there's people in the program and they're kind of holding to this nihilism that life is empty, it's pointless, it's meaningless, that we're just these happenstance, lucky piles and combinations of meat and atom and carbons and H2O, there's nothing special about us, we're lucky to be here, there's no foundational actual value of human life. There's no basis for human rights. These are just social constructs that we found helpful. They lead to reproductive fitness. But humans aren't actually worth anything. There's no purpose. There's no value. There's no grand destiny. The point of life is just to find a way to numb the pain. Okay? It left them broken. They would, they would come to me with their empty bottles. They would say, hey, I'm, I'm drinking too much. Can you take these from me? These aren't serving me well. And at the table they said, there's something different about the Christians in the program. They don't, they don't seem to get bogged down the same way. What is this lightness, this sure footing that comes from the gospel of peace? I think it comes from three things, at least as believers, past, present, and future. This is a clarity of conscience that comes from the gospel, an assurance of salvation that comes from the gospel, and the hope of glory that comes from the gospel. Let's start with a clarity of conscience. As a believer, because of what Jesus did on the cross... I now have a clear conscience that gives me peace. Why? Well, hypothetically, let's assume you fall back into a sin, your old favorite habit of choice. You thought, I was done with this, this isn't me anymore, and you fall back into that sweet, familiar sin. Well, guess what? Satan's referred to as the accuser of the brethren. He comes and says, I saw that, and God saw that. You're not really over this. You're still the same old self. You may not even be a Christian. You're just a dirty failure. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, you can say, guess what? I'm actually more messed up than you even know about. But Jesus is more gracious than I could ever imagine. And he paid the price for this. Last week, Pastor Terry said, this is the breastplate of righteousness, that Satan calls you by your sin, but Jesus calls you by your name. Your identity is not what you've done, but who he is. 
And that leads us to the present, which is the assurance of salvation. That when hard things happen, big or small, I don't have to worry if these bad things is somehow God's punishment for me. Is God angry at me because of what I did? Is he punishing me now? No, not at all, actually. Um, My debt has been paid. The great business is settled. The great sickness is healed. This is a settled deal. The business is over. God's not punishing me. He's actually pleased with me. And these things that are happening in my life, it's not God's punishment. It's actually an opportunity and a place and a position and a season to know him more deeply and to learn how to grow and serve in greater love, trust, and faithfulness in the midst of it. That's my assurance of salvation in the midst of it. I can have a peace because I know God isn't angry with me. He's not punishing me, but he loves me. And he will use all these things for my good and his glory. And we look to the future There's the future hope of glory. This might be the most emotionally gripping of them all. We know that Jesus came to set me free from the consequences of my sin. And one day he will return to finish the good work that he started. That he's going to redeem the whole planet. He's not going to take us off into heaven with some little cherub babies and blast the earth. Not at all. He's coming to redeem it all. He's going to make it to what it was. And we will be reconciled with him. We're going to be reconciled with ourselves, with each other, and with all the created world. That life, it's not going to be a burden getting up in the morning. It's not going to be hard to get out of bed. Work won't be a chore. It won't be hard to receive love from others or to give love to them. I'm not going to wrestle with these things. I'm not going to go back to those old habits. But he's going to make me into what I was, into what I am, into what I will be. That when we see these things, we talked about this with, the, with the, what a wedding is in Revelation 13, the wedding supper of the Lamb. But all these things are a glimpse. Whenever, why, why in the world do we like fantasy and fiction and superhero movies so much? Because it gives us a glimpse of what could be. It gives us a glimpse of what should be. It shows us maybe what could be. In his sermon, the... The weight of glory, C.S. Lewis, he puts it like this. He describes what's going to happen, the hope of future glory. For if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry, so false as history, may be very near the truth as prophecy. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then they will put on its glory, or rather the greater greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. Only the first sketch. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. Romans 8 is one great shout. He says, what shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he gave us his son, how will he not give us all things? Who is there to condemn us? It is Christ who justifies. Think of the thing that's eating you up right now. What's that pebble in your shoe? 
What's robbing you of your peace? Listen to Paul say this. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor the powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. How does that compare to your dishwasher acting up? Doesn't it put it in perspective? Not to remove us from the problem, not that we don't care. The answer is not some kind of Gnostic, Stoic indifference. But now I have a footing that can't be shaken. So Christian, today, what's on your feet? Have you put on this readiness, this steadfast stance? Are you wearing flip-flops in a marathon? You're wearing Crocs on the battlefield. For the person today who is not a Christian, would you receive this peace that comes from the gospel? Would you come with your anger and lay it at the feet? Say to God, I don't have peace and I'm looking for it in all the wrong places and it never seems to last. I can buy this thing or get this award or do so much exercise, but I feel empty half an hour later. I can't seem to fill this void and I need peace. Would I get peace with God? Would I let him be who he says he is? And would I let myself be who he says I am? And would, me, would we be marked as a people saturated with this readiness? Would people come into Bayview Glen and say, wow, there's a people here with a lightness. A yoke is easy and a burden that is light. They run and they don't grow weary. They walk and they don't grow faint. Would we be this presence of peace in the world? Because when we have peace with ourselves, we're free to love others. If I am guilt-free in my relationship with God, if I don't need to manipulate him, but I can love him freely, then I don't need to manipulate other people. I can love them freely. If I'm not worried about God rejecting me, I can love you and not be worried about you rejecting me. If I've been forgiven by him and received his grace, I can forgive you and I can give you grace as well. Peace with God leads to peace from God. And then we have peace that we can give. Not only for us, but for others. That's why we as a church, we pass the peace. This is the shalom, the peace that the Bible talks about. That we had, that we have, and we will one day have perfectly. And that will be a good day. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, church. God, we thank you for this peace. I confess that so often I'm forgetful or slow to put it on. I try to wrestle with my own circumstances by my own strength, my own might, my own willpower, my own skill. But you came to set us free from that by the power of your Holy Spirit through the death of your Son that we could have a readiness, that we could step into the conflict with the peace, that we wouldn't be shaken by it, but we would be free and attentive to show your love and your peace to others in the midst of the chaos of this fallen world. Would you give us the faith to respond to open up these areas of our heart that you want to come and heal. And would you bless us as we continue in worship. It's in your son's name, amen. Church, would you bow your heads and hold out your hands? I'm going to read a prayer from Francis of Assisi. Let this be our benediction for today. Lord, make us an instrument of your peace where there is uh, hatred Let us sow love where there is injury, pardon, where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, and where there is sadness, 
joy. O Divine Master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. Amen. Church, if this is your first time here, you've been coming and you want to check things out more, I would invite you to go to our Next Step Center in the lobby. Hope you have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday. Bye.